Hey everybody, welcome to AM Live. Thank you for joining me. Hope your weekend is going well. So this week, I thought I'd talk about a couple of developments in the realm of what's called disinformation. And in my experience, there's an actual term for disinformation, an actual definition, which means, you know, false statements. But then there's the operative definition that is so often used in our current media and political environment. And in that context, disinformation means anything that goes against the propaganda of the state, particularly the uh, U.S. state, but also that of its allies, like in the U.K. And on that front, uh, this week, there was a a couple of, of interesting developments from people who claim to counter disinformation, but really, I think, propagate it, and accordingly face a problem when there are journalists or voices who put out information that they can't actually refute because the facts are not on their side. So in that case, what is to be done? Well, we got some examples of that uh, two this week. One was from a British journalist named Paul Mason, who was caught in some uh, leaked emails of his that were stolen from him, uh, showing him trying to plot to collaborate with the British security state to basically take out the gray zone, the outlet that I work for, And also go after the UK anti-war left. And he drew a very broad map sketching out everyone from Jeremy Corbyn to the Stop the War Coalition to even the entire black community inside the UK. So his idea of who is being infiltrated um, uh, by what he called Russian disinformation is very, very expansive. And then there was an academic by the name of J.C. Boucher, who's with the University of Calgary. And he, he put out a study. They got some attention in Canadian media, although completely it was all uh, positive attention. There was zero critical scrutiny from the corporate Canadian media, basically accusing myself and other dissident journalists, if that's what you want to call us, uh, of uh, spreading Russian disinformation. Though, of course, he didn't identify any examples of this supposed disinformation. And it just made me think, I mean, this is nothing new. We've seen cases like this before where anybody who dissents from the prevailing narrative, anyone who, who, who presents countervailing facts, will be labeled as Russian dupes or Russian plants or Russian assets. But I'm just wondering if this really is the new normal, if this is what we're going to be seeing now on a regular basis, just whenever there's someone who doesn't drink the Kool-Aid, who dissents from the party line, whether they're going to be smeared and targeted. And in the case of Paul Mason, it was particularly revealing because he's someone who inside the UK has some prominence. He was a supporter of Jeremy Corbyn and got some attention for that, even though it was actually revealed that he was secretly plotting to undermine Jeremy Corbyn. And Jeremy Corbyn ends up making Paul Mason's map that he drew of nefarious influences inside the UK. But what he was caught doing was was pretty um, malicious. And the Gray Zone reported on it. Uh, Kate Clarenberg and Max Blumenthal had the story, which I'll link to in the show notes if you haven't read it. And basically, it's just a series of emails where they're talking about setting up some kind of operation in conjunction with the British state to uh, <coughs> to take out the Gray Zone, to discredit us. He wants to squeeze us financially. He wants to uh, <laughs> engage in what is called in the emails relentless deplatforming. So make sure that nobody can hear what we have to say. Um, in the process, he makes some pretty funny uh, admissions. So, for example, if you've heard of Bellingcat, which is this uh, U.S. government-funded, uh, NATO state-funded, private security firm-funded 
uh, organization that claims to be just there to do open source in, uh, research and uncover war crimes. Uh, in reality, it does the bidding of the people who fund it, which is, you know, the U.S. government and various cutouts. And um, so I've sparred with them before because they've gone after me and the OPCW whistleblowers in trying to claim that there really was a chemical attack in Syria in uh, Duma in April 2018. And they've tried to discredit the OPCW whistleblowers who actually did the real investigation and found no such chemical attack at all. And so, you know, people like myself have been saying for a long time that it's very obvious that Bellingcat is a asset of the states that fund it. You know, the financial tie is there and the record of fraud is there on their behalf, as I've reported on before and exposed how, especially in the case of Duma and the OPCW, they put out disinformation in a bid to um, discredit the whistleblowers and cover up for what actually happened, which was a staged incident by sectarian death squads fighting the Syrian government. And so, you know, when we say stuff like this, that Bellingcat is essentially an asset of uh, Western states, we get accused of spreading uh, Russian disinformation. And so ironically, Paul Mason in these emails where he is trying to come up with ways to take us down on the basis of him believing that we are somehow tied to Russia, false, of course, <laughs> but that's what he believes. Um, Mason says the exact same thing we do about Bellingcat. He calls them, quote, um, Intel service input by proxy, which is exactly what we've been saying, that they're a proxy for Western intelligence. And uh, he also says that they receive a steady stream of information from Western intelligence, which I totally agree with. And what's funny is after these emails came to light, he tried to backtrack and he said, uh, you know, Bellingcat is 100 percent independent, which sounded to me like something Donald Trump would say, you know, 100 percent. I'm 100 percent innocent. Um, and it was an obvious attempt to save face, but nobody's buying it. Mason privately blurted out the truth. And he also blurted out the truth when he basically admits in these emails that um, he's, having a, he's having an exchange with a guy named Amil Khan, who's an uh, intelligence contractor in the, in the UK, involved in a bunch of shady operations, including, including the Syria dirty war. And they talk about the fact that they don't want to go toe-to-toe with the gray zone when it comes to debating. <laughs> they don't want to actually debate us. So instead, they're coming up with all these different schemes to try to take us down, and that includes trying to deplatform us and uh, squeeze us financially. And it gets so absurd that they even start talking in 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 ways in which they're like they're almost like the they're almost like spies themselves, or like or that's how they fashion themselves. Like we need to use clean phones and have firm opsec and infosec. All the all this jargon of like the spook world. Which is funny because they're actually they are trying to collaborate w- with the spook world. Um, and what's interesting about that is one of the emails set, uh, shows that uh, Mason's uh, uh, contact, Anil Khan, uh, he he actually hears from somebody inside the British security state, and uh, he gets back a response saying that because he he's inviting them to come and uh, and, and collaborate in a meeting and talk about how to take down the gray zone. And um, Khan reports that he spoke to someone on the British National Security Council, but they say to him, uh, we don't, we're not going to come because that could jeopardize outcomes later. He doesn't specify what that means, but it's a very interesting phrase. It could jeopardize outcomes later. That's the quote. Uh, If someone from the government comes to a meeting about how to take down a dissident uh, website. And um, note that the British official doesn't say 
we're not going to come because it's not appropriate for the government to take to take part in targeting journalists. The, the response is, <laughs> we're not going to come because, quote, it could jeopardize outcomes later. So I'm curious what those outcomes are, uh, what they're uh, referring to. But overall, I mean, this speaks to the problem that they have is like, if you really disagree with us, if you don't think we're putting accurate information, there's an obvious answer. Just put out a rebuttal, write articles, put out videos saying this is what the gray zone said here and this is why they're wrong. Okay, that's just like that's just like intellectual honesty 101. But these people are completely devoid of that. So the thought of rebutting us on the merits doesn't even occur to them. So instead, they have to come up with these elaborate plots and fantasizing about being spooks and having, uh, you know, burner phones and even collaborating with the British state to do it. Uh, all because they can't actually engage with us on the facts. And it's just funny that in all this, the notion, the option of trying to engage with us on the facts isn't even a forethought. It's not even there because, of course, the facts are not on their side. Which brings us to uh, this guy, J.C. Boucher. So just to give you a sense of how he thinks, uh, when he defines Russian disinformation uh, along five narratives, okay? So this is a study he does where he's looking at social media accounts that have some traction and that he says promote Russian disinformation. So these are the five narratives that he says constitute Russian disinformation. Number one, implying NATO expansionism legitimizes the Russian invasion. That's number one. Well, look, he includes me in this in this camp. I've never said that implying NATO expansionism legitimizes the Russian invasion. I do think it helped provoke it, which is something different, but I've never said that it, that, that it legitimizes it. So that's the first, you know, fallacy right there with him. And then he says uh, the second uh, narrative of, of Russian disinformation is this portraying NATO as an aggressive alliance using NATO as a proxy against Russia. Imagine that. Imagine believing that U- uh, Ukraine is being used as a proxy against Russia when Adam Schiff, you know, two years ago said the U.S. aids Ukraine so that we can fight Russia over there and not over here. And Lindsey Graham goes to Ukraine in late 2016 and says, 2017 will be the year, the year of offense. Russia will pay a heavy price, you know, as if he's some, somehow Ukrainian general. So really, the idea that Ukraine is a proxy against Russia is even admitted by top U.S. officials. And that's been made even more clear since, since Russia invaded, when it's openly said now that, that, that this is a proxy war. So by this guy's standards, pretty much the entire U.S. political establishment is, is guilty of pushing Russian disinformation. And then he says, number three, promoting a general mistrust in institutions and elites. Okay. This is an academic at a university, which is supposed to, I think, you know, um, in theory, encourage skepticism of institutions and elites. It's supposed to encourage critical thinking. That's what critical thinking is, is looking at the people who are powerful in your society, whether it's the U.S. or Russia, and being skeptical of their actions. And this guy somehow sees that act as a nefarious act of Russian disinformation, promoting a general mistrust in in institutions and elites. Guilty as charged, in my case. Um, Number four, suggesting that Ukraine is a fascist state or has extensive fascist influences. Um, Well, in my case, I've never said it's a fascist state. I do think it's undeniable that Ukraine has a fascist influence. And again, that's not controversial. You can read in Foreign Policy magazine, uh, and I've quoted this before, where it's openly said that it's no secret that fascist elements were a part of the coup 
that took place in Ukraine in 2014 and have been empowered since. I mean, what else can you say when you have figures like Andre Perubi and others who um, have their roots in Ukraine's neo-fascist movements and encourage things like the, Modesta, the, the Odessa massacre of 2014, where dozens of people, pro-Russians, were burned alive. They were burned alive by fascists and who have the support of the Ukrainian government. That's just a fact. And finally, promoting a specific mistrust of Canada's liberal, liberal government, and especially Prime Minister Trudeau. So again, if you promote mistrust of the government, somehow you are promoting Russian disinformation. And the irony there is this is something out of the Soviet playbook. I'm, I'm sure Soviet commissars said the exact same thing, that if you promote mistrust of the state, of the Soviet state, then you are spreading disinformation. So it's amazing how often these people are guilty of doing the exact thing that they're accusing other people of, which is being state propagandists. In this case, as is always the norm, the Canadian media omits that this guy who did the study, J.C. Boucher, is funded by the Canadian Department of Defense. Uh, just as this week there was a study from something called the Institute for Strategic D Dialogue, and they put out, put, put, put out a study about uh, journalists inside Ukraine who they say are putting out Russian disinformation and NBC news picked up the stories if it was some landmark thing. Um, but, uh, they're not mentioning that the, this, this group, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue is funded by NATO states and <laughs> defense contractors and various oligarch funded organizations like Pierre Midiar, George Soros. Don't even mention that. That's the real disinformation here. Uh, and because they're relying on obedience to the state they have to go after anyone who doesn't toe the party line and so that's where you know we're seeing stuff like this happen and just to give you a window into the mind of these people here's jc boucher appearing this week on canadian tv here's a little clip so collecting you know all of these tweets since november of 2021 what we find systematically is that about 25 percent of accounts and about 35 percent of the conversation on the Ukraine war in Canada really focuses on or promotes Russian propaganda. So, so like the good news is that 65 to 75% of, of that conversation is, is really trying to push away from the Russian narrative, but a s substantial part um, is, is really Russian propaganda. What are some of those narratives, the main kind of through lines that you've uh, identified? Right. So the interesting part of the study is that at the University of Calgary, we're trying to use machine learning and data analytics to actually analyze the data. So instead of just reading six million tweets, we're actually using computers to analyze and cluster and classify those. And what we find out of this is that basically the Russian propaganda is pushing like five major themes. The first one is the notion that uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine is caused by NATO's expansion eastward. They're, essentially, the Russians are making the argument that because of our expansion in the Baltic state and Poland, they had to invade Ukraine. The second argument is that, in fact, Russian, uh, NATO aggression toward Russia compelled Russia to invade. So in, in this sense, uh, Canada and the Western countries are using uh, Ukraine as a proxy to fight a war against Russia. The third one is a notion about, uh, and everyone saw this, that you know there's Nazis in the Ukrainian regime and, and Russia has to invade to denazify Ukraine. And the last two ones, which are important for us, is, is, the note, is, is really tackling on the mistrust in institution, essentially making the argument that the entire Russian 
war is caused by uh, globalist elites, by the, the Trudeau government supporting uh, Ukraine, and really tackling on anti-elitism and 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 really this sense of, of of entitlement that the elites are using Russia as a as a cop out to promote uh, global order. And something that stood out also. All right, that's enough of that guy. <laughs> Although it's it's pretty revealing to hear him speak. So look, th- this is the uh, face of uh, counter disinformation. We saw it with Nina Jankowicz when she was had a brief run as the head of the Department of Homeland Security's disinformation board. It's people who essentially are in lockstep with their own states, states that are often funding them. And anyone who dissents from the party line just must be reflexively guilty of Russian disinformation. And there's all these clever ways to make it sound as if they have data to support their narratives. Like he talks about algorithms and they've analyzed they, They've somehow analyzed 6 million tweets in a computer and come up with uh, a study that they claim proves that this uh, certain number of people, myself included, are promoting Russian disinformation. I asked JC Boucher to send me actually his actual methods, their data set, like what they actually use to come to this conclusion. He said he would, but he hasn't yet. So I'm waiting uh, on that with bated breath. I'm also waiting on him to identify one case where I've, one single case where I've ever spread disinformation because I asked him for an example. He hasn't provided that yet, but uh, I'm sure that's just coming any minute now. So anyway, that's uh, that's what we're facing. The Paul, Mason, the Paul Mason episode was comical because the guy is so paranoid. But the broader theme, I think, is serious, which is that dissenting voices are being targeted. And in areas where you can't outright censor them, then there's going to be attempts to stigmatize people and make it so that even engaging with dissenting voices like the gray zone is is deemed to be an act of heresy or it's deemed to be uh, somehow aiding Russia and other official enemies. And that's the playbook that we've seen for a while. And I just, to me, it's getting worse. And I'm curious to hear what everybody else has to think about that. So let's take some calls. Pedro, you're up first. Hi, Aaron. Um, Good afternoon. So uh, I, I was on Twitter and I actually saw your tweet uh, about it, that you about your asking professor about his email and you gave it, send me your research and he said okay I'll send you your research so I found that a bit curious so why the professor can send your research to Mr. Mati when he's asked but uh, why can't he just share it publicly. And then I went to uh, to look a bit further. It seems they got $2 million from the Canadian government. So so I asked him on Twitter, so why why can you only share your research to Mr. Mati? Why, why don't you share? Shouldn't, shouldn't this be public information, like Canada's laws or something? So, uh, yeah, I wonder if you could elaborate a bit on that. Uh, and then I actually went to, to look for, for the research. It's actually a PDF document where, the, where it basically built the list of p- people that are critical of him. So that's $2 million for that. I can do an internet search myself. So thank you. Have a great day. Bye now. Oh, oh another thing. Uh, since you published your email, so I like to write. So I was wondering, uh, I'll probably send you an email for some su- suggestions of my writings for the Gray Zone, for example. So bye okay. now. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for the call. Yeah, look, it's a great question. Um, 
why should he even be sharing his methodology with me? It should already be public. I shouldn't even have to ask him. But the, <laughs> but the funny thing there is he hasn't even sent it to me yet when he said he would. And maybe he will. And if he does, I'll definitely share it publicly. But I suspect I won't be hearing from him. But I, I hope I'm wrong. But, yeah, it should be public for everyone to see. It's just you can't do a serious study and claim that you have all this data to support your sweeping conclusions about Russian disinformation, but not show your data or your methodology. It's that doesn't make sense. That's not, I mean, I'm not an academic, but that strikes me as not very serious. And yeah, um, he is funded by the Canadian government. And I suspect that's what really is going on here is, is, you know, he's rewarded for, you know, uh, going after dissidents. And uh, that's what he's really in this for not doing any kind of serious, serious research. Yes, I agree with you. He doesn't seem like a very smart person, if you ask me. But, yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> I share that conclusion. Okay, thanks yes. for the call. Jeff. Hi, Aaron. Um, about the um, Paul Mason, um, it's kind of weird because in the UK we have this almost, this is going to sound bizarre, but there's been sort of like this cottage industry among neocons here, I suppose you might call them, over the years, trying to demonize people like Noam Chomsky, and people have spoken up about previous wars, and even sort of trying to label people like Chomsky as genocide deniers. And this goes all the way back to the Balkan Wars in the 1990s, when um, uh, Chomsky basically, because, you know, the, the war in Kosovo was supposed to be a good war, you know, by Western standards, whereas, for example, the Iraq war was supposed to be a bad war. And I remember Chomsky actually saying at one stage that it was like defending um, the conduct of that war by Britain and the UK and NATO states has become like a holy cause over here. And I, I do see a link uh, between that and the kind of just extreme demonization of anyone who talks about the OPCW, uh, you know, weapons inspectors in Syria and, you, you know, discusses the, the, you know, the Duma attack the way you do and the Grey Zone does. And, you know, Bellingcat is also based in the UK. Uh, Paul Mason is obviously. Um, we have this thing called the Institute for Statecraft and the Integrity Initiative. We've got this strange sort of Wikipedia character called Philip Cross, who's obsessively editing the profiles of, you know, anti-war uh, people. And um, I don't know, it just strikes me as somewhat different to the climate in the United States. I mean, I know people like Chomsky and yourselves are relentlessly ignored by the mainstream media. But over here, um, you are a little more prominent, but you're, you, you are victimized with this appalling demonization. I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to use like, if they can say something like Aaron Maté or the Grey Zone denies the gassing of children. You know, it, it sounds so severe, like Noam Chomsky denies the Bosnian genocide. You know, it's, it's a way of trying to uh, disqualify you from the conversation, I think. But it's really ugly. They've been doing it here for a long time. Yes, they have. I mean, similar. Look, I mean, and they rolled it out domestically, too, on Jeremy Corbyn, where yeah. he was accused of uh, denying the severity of the supposed anti-Semitism crisis inside the Labour Party, which, in my opinion, was a complete scam that results from the same dynamic where these powerful people inside the UK see a threat to their agenda, to their power and status, to their 
worldview, which is, you know, premised on serving U.S. hegemony because the U.K. is basically a junior partner of the U.S. in this global system. And so Jeremy Corbyn's a threat to all that. So what do they do? All of a sudden, they claim there's an anti-Semitism crisis inside his party, and they use that to sabotage him. And it was very effective. And it meant that you know, even, mem- even supporters of Jeremy Corbyn got intimidated into, you know, uh, into basically being silent or even going along and saying, yeah, we need to address this, not realizing that the foundation was a scam and premised on the fact that they want to take out Jeremy Corbyn and undermine everything that he stands for. And so when you can't challenge Corbyn on the facts and when you can't stop his popularity, all you have left is to try to taint him and smear him. And that's what they've done to us as well when they call us deniers of this or that. Um, and in the case of the OPCW, it's extraordinary because, look, even if the OPCW whistleblowers had never come along, there still would have been so many reasons to question the official narrative about Duma. There's all this open source evidence that calls into question, including reporting from a BBC reporter named Riam Dalati, who said that the hospital scene in Duma was staged with the involvement of the White Helmets. Uh, that was in the OPCW whistleblowers. Um, and that was corroborated by witnesses who were interviewed by journalists like Robert Fisk and others. So even without the OPCW uh, whistleblowers, there'd be grounds to question the narrative. But what's amazing is even when you have leaked documents from inside the body that investigated Duma, still, you're not allowed to talk about a uh, point of view that dissents from the official narrative, which is that Syria was guilty. And if you do, then you're somehow denying atrocities. That's how the propaganda system works. And I've, I, I see it. A lot of people are sufficiently intimidated just by being called names and being called deniers to basically be silent about it. Even though it's such an explosive story, the implications of the OPCW story, I, I don't need to go into them because I've talked about it before, but it's been uh, successful in shutting people up about it and, and not getting and, and meaning that the story does not gotten the attention that it deserves. Yeah, I mean, and, we, over here, it's like we've all made this tacit compact almost to pretend that there never were any OPCW whistleblowers. I mean, that is how rarely, you know, it's never spoken about. And Robert Fisk, I mean, they even went after him after he died. You know, of course. Like, yeah. In a horrible way. Yeah. And that was done, by the way, going after Fisk and attacking him when he was no longer around to respond was a way to uh, just ensure narrative obedience so that no one follows his lead and asks questions and does yeah. their job. That's what the attacks on him were meant to do. And they had the advantage of him not being around anymore to, to defend himself. It was, it was disgusting. And look, you know, I've talked about this example. My favorite example of the erasure of the OCW whistleblowers is a Washington Post reporter named Joby Warwick who wrote a whole book called Redline came out last year. Uh, it's about Syria and chemical weapons and the OPCW. Okay. Mm-hmm. If, there's ever, if ever there's a book that should be talking about the OPCW whistleblowers, it's a book about Syria, the OPCW and chemical weapons. And Joby Warwick ends his book. Okay. He ends the book at Duma, like at the incident, which is April, 2018 and omits everything that came afterwards a year later, which is leaks from mm-hmm. inside the OPCW showing that investigators found no evidence of a chemical attack, but had their, investigation covered up and censored and doctored so he omits all of that it's the most like blatant lie by omission i've ever seen it's unbelievable and he's still in his reporting on the topic will not acknowledge their existence and on twitter i've gotten him to engage with me a little bit and he just says yeah the opcw whistleblowers are wrong blah 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 
But then it becomes, all right, well, show your work. If you think they're wrong, you know, prove it. Show why. Uh, but if you think they're not even worth – if they're so wrong, you can't even mention them. I mean, that's just ridiculous. He can't yeah, mention really, them. He can't mention them because he actually can't refute them. No, and it's really weird that uh, Chloe Hadjimathieu of BBC Radio. She was doing a profile of uh, Paul Mason not long ago, and she described him as being formally sort of in the pro Corbyn camp. But he'd sort of, uh, you know, he he'd tired of uh, you know his fellow leftists, as it were, and he's now devoting himself to, supposedly to uh, countering disinformation. I mean, if you look at the role she's played in uh, that initial report about Duma, uh, where she refused to even follow through with you and other people she was accusing. I mean... Not only that, is- but, but, not, but like not only that. I mean, sure, she, like, like, like she attacked me and others, and that's to be expected. She didn't even mention her own colleagues' reporting. She did like an 11-part podcast about Duma trying to show that the OPCW whistleblowers are wrong. Or at least, you know, it, it, was, it was multiple episodes of, of an 11 episode or so series. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't even mention her own colleague, Riam Delati, who I talked about earlier, who did an investigation and said unequivocally that the Duma hospital scene was staged. She doesn't even mention him, but yet she attacks us for saying the exact same thing. It's even just, he uh, acted in a strange way because he kind of came out, he admitted that the hospital scene was staged, but he believed that the atrocity is real. I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. He cowardly couched his language. He said the hospital scene was staged, but the attack was real. But he doesn't actually say what he means by that. Does he mean it was a chlorine attack, a sarin attack? What does he mean? So basically, but yes, the um, the the propaganda model is so strong that even people like him who know the facts are sufficiently intimidated to basically couch their language in mealy mouthed ways to basically avoid the, the stigma that we get for for speaking the truth and, and for just following the facts. Uh, that's how powerful the propaganda system is. Yeah. Um, and yes, there is. Uh, um, and, and by the way, look, I should say about Paul Mason, you know, b- before these uh, emails surfaced, he wrote a column about a month ago calling for state action against the gray zone and other yeah dissident uh voices and, and he mentioned myself and max Blumenthal. so i wrote him uh i just said hey paul do you want to come on my podcast and debate this and you know explain what you mean by state action like what what kind of state action you want to take against us and and let's have a debate about that and also about ukraine and the issues that you think we're wrong on and of course he declined and then we found out what he proceeded to do which is instead of just coming on and publicly m- making his case for why he thinks we're wrong he was plotting to try to have us deplatformed yeah, that's pretty much it. That sums up the mentality of these people. He's a very strange character because he's he's got to be the only one remotely associated with, you know, supporting Corbyn, who's actually become a big supporter of Keir Starmer. And on yeah. that um, uh, episode of the Owen Jones show, which you and Max showed on Grey Zone uh, yesterday, it, it was actually Owen Jones and Michael Walker of Novara Media. They were uh, trying to sort of get through to him. They're sort of arguing with him almost in a mocking way because he claims to be this big leftist but also this big supporter of Keir Starmer and of course he has all these he believes that people who uh, you know speak as if there's any kind of uh, doubt as to Russia's aggression in Ukraine they have to be expelled from the Labour Party but 
people who, you know, even Labour MPs who support Saudi Arabia and what it's doing in Yemen, he says, well, that's a difference that's containable within the Labour Party. Yeah, yeah. It's apparently not, you know, Russia. Yeah, yeah. there's an amazing exchange uh, between Paul Mason and Owen Jones in the interview. And, and Owen Jones, I'm not a big fan of, and I suspect it's, it's mutual. I, Me you know, neither, but, no. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, he... Owen Jones asked a great question, like because Paul Mason is calling for Labor members to be expelled, essentially if they criticize if they criticize NATO, if they say that NATO played a role in provoking Russia and Ukraine, yeah. he calls for them to be expelled. And so Owen Jones says, "Okay, so but you're not calling for Labor members to be expelled if they support Saudi genocide in Yemen. So what makes Yemeni lives worth less than Ukrainian lives?" And of course, Paul Mason's response is, that "That's a Putin talking point." Yeah, you know, it's all he can do. I mean, that, that's all these people have. It's, it's quite revealing. Absolutely. Anyway, best of luck with uh, your show. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Okay, Nima. Oh, um, hi, Aaron. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Well, um, I think uh, before I ask my question, um, I think we should all take out take a moment of silence for the death of Paul Mason's uh, campaign, because let's remember, he was standing to be uh, an MP for Labour, and that crashed and burned a few hours ago when when he was um, the local selection committee uh, cut him out. So oh, I didn't his, know that. His, I didn't know that. Yeah, it happened. Yeah, that is breaking news, and it's incredibly funny, um, and and it's I, I find it sort of representative of him as a character, and this is what I wanted to talk to you about. I think it's rather comforting and positive that these when when your when your opponent when your political opponent and the people trying to smear you, if your enemies are this cartoonishly stupid and incompetent, you got nothing to worry about. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the, the, the whole thing where the whole chart and, and everything else that they put out is just, you know, he doesn't even understand that Ofcom doesn't regulate websites. He doesn't understand that what a, what a legal jurisdiction is in that the gray zone is based in the United States and the British court, British courts have no jurisdiction there. We're talking, you know, we're talking high school. We're, we're talking like, you know, year five, year six, year seven level of intelligence here and, and lack of knowledge. It's, it's fantastic. Um, so <laughs> what I wanted to ask you is, I mean, on a more serious note, I mean, the, uh, um, something you you spoke about the the government, you know, with, with them saying that they could you know damage things down the line. Clearly, they're already doing this. Um, but I mean, what what do you consider? Um, you know, living in you know living in the United States, what what would you consider would be the next step to kind of expose these, as you guys already kind of have done? But to kind of, I mean, I remember the church committee in the in the in the United States, and I'm not identical but related kind of you know post McCarthyan era how do you counter this what are your thoughts on that well I don't know what else to do except just to continue uh, doing what we're doing and you know uh, being faithful what about to the, the legal route what about the legal I, I route I'm, I'm not a litigious person I, I feel uh, like I, I just feel like the, the, the legal system never benefits never favors people on our side. You know, it never no. favors the dissidents. It just, it favors those with, with resources who can tie you up in court forever. You know, yeah. like a year ago I was dealing with the, I don't know if you saw the, like this show called the young Turks in the U S called me essentially a Russian <laughs> asset. Uh, Anna, and, Anna and Anna and Jenk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I spoke to some lawyers about it and it just like the, the cost 
and the amount of time. And so, and I just don't, I think in this case too, I mean, Paul Mason can say we're Russian assets and all that stuff. And I know that in the UK, it's actually easier to, easier to sue people for stuff like that. But I just, I actually don't, you know, you know, like to be honest, I don't even believe in it. I actually believe that Paul Mason should be able to say whatever he wants. Like he wants to call us Russian assets. Uh, he wants to lie about us and call for us to be plat to, to be deplatformed, all that stuff. I mean, that's his, I believe he has the right to say that. And I just don't think it would serve um, a righteous cause to spend so much time. I, I don't mean, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, there is the libelous and uh, defamatory aspect of it, of course, um, which is prohibited by civil laws. And sometimes it even crosses the boundary into criminal law. Yeah. My, my issue is more, um, you know, that comment from the British government official, that's something that I think warrants further investigation. Right. Well, that's a good point. Uh, it does. We should actually write to the British government and say, like, yeah. you know, uh, but we're never going to get an answer. Um, and uh, look, you know, all I can say is, you know, stay tuned. I mean, there is more reporting being done on the story uh, from Kit Clarenberg and Max Blumenthal that will be out soon. And who knows where it goes. But I, I think you raise a good point. There, At a certain point, if there's enough indications that there's, you know, a targeted campaign going on with the help of the government, then we do have possibly some legal recourse. So I think it's a good, it's a good idea to think about. So thank you. No, thank you. And, and, and I I just want to take this moment and say that what you guys do on the gray zone since day one, I mean, the first time I came across the website, I think it was a couple of years ago when, when Max blew the whistle on, on Bellingcat, from and and Twitter invented that that warning sign for him about leaked materials, which I yes, found incredibly great. hilarious. <laughs> so I, I really urge everyone to support the Grey Zone because I do, and I think everyone should. Well, thank you, appreciate that. Thank, thank you. you. Okay. Thanks. All right, H Ali, and if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom. There you go. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my question is about uh, Ukraine and and the um, and the East, sort of, uh, because I mean, most of us feel Ukraine is a bit of a puppet state to the to the United States or, or NATO or whatever. And since two thousand fourteen or so, but then you start to look back and look at other cases of. Um, Western influence on um, domestic Eastern European politics, like you have Georgia in 2008, and you have the first mess in Ukraine in 2004. Well, not the first, but the one previously before the 2013-14 troubles. And then it makes me wonder, like, I, I just feel like maybe I've been naive that... I always thought that after the Cold War, when the uh, Western world managed to, you know, influence the uh, like dismantling of the Eastern Bloc and uh, communism was gone. And then I just assumed that, well, now they're satisfied and now these countries are no longer communist and whatever happens is is whatever happens. But it makes me wonder, like, if you go back beyond 2004, I mean... Have, do you think that, well, I don't know, do you think maybe there is information about this, but I haven't, like, there's been a lot of discussions about Ukraine and Georgia and stuff in the uh, 21st century, but what about the 90s, like, 
has NATO or the U.S. or whatever, have they always been as involved in uh, in the policies of the former uh, uh, Eastern Bloc? Like, were they already doing this, like, in, trying to influence the, the, the right or neoliberals of um, countries like Poland and Hungary and the Baltic states and so on? Do you have any thought about that? Well... I mean, I don't know the full history, but when I think of the 90s, certainly the U.S. was heavily involved in Russia in basically helping to create Russia's, you know, oligarch system, shock therapy, you know, uh, wiping out the Russian economy, propping up Yeltsin, spending a lot of money to keep him in power, um, basically, and, you know, laughing behind his back. I mean, there's um, there's a line in a memoir from one of Clinton's top aides, I think it's Strobe Talbot, where they're joking about how much, you know, shit they used to basically smudge in Yeltsin's face. That's the joke that they make. And how they then had to, you know, uh, like look at him with a straight face while meanwhile, next door in the next room, they're plotting about how to, you know, shove more shit into his face. I mean, that's the level of disrespect that was shown towards Russia. And Putin kind of grew out of the ashes of that. Um, and then, and then of course, there was Yugoslavia. I mean, the bombing of Yugoslavia and uh, breaking up that state. Um, that was a major way to impact the uh, European order then and to weaken the power of uh, states that were not in the U.S. bloc. In terms of interference in, in countries, I, I'm, if I were to bet, I'm sure you could find examples. I just don't know that that history. I, you know, Certainly, the color revolutions of 2004, the U.S. played a role. In Ukraine, Victoria Nuland bragged the U.S. has spent $5 billion in Ukraine since the fall of the Soviet Union. And what do you think that's for? Do you think that Victoria Nuland and the U.S. really want to promote democracy? Or is that to destabilize and try to bring Ukraine into the U.S. orbit? And I think it's the latter. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe they've been trying to, quote, unquote, influence, like uh, promote democracy in all the countries. Because I'm no expert on the Eastern Europe, but I live in Europe, in Western Europe, in Sweden. And when I... The, the, the feeling you get is that there's a lot of right-wing progress in these countries, like rehabilitating old Nazis, not just in Ukraine, but also the Baltic states and so on. And it just makes me wonder, maybe maybe this has been in work from from the West since, uh, since like, they continued doing that even after the fall of the Eastern Bloc. So that was my thought. But I guess I'm going to have to do some research on that or whatever. But, uh, yeah. That was just a question I had. So thanks uh, for taking my call, and uh, till next time. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Hi. 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 I I don't know if I can really add anything to the conversation because you have done a hell of a job reporting on this. I'm so happy to be a fan of yours, although you might not want me to say as a fan because I'm very much you know in support of. You know what? I'm not going to go into that. Uh, what I really wanted to say was I want to just uh, make you aware that you have I want to I want to lend you some moral support. And I want to say to both you and Max, I really love that you guys are keeping your sense of humor about this and encourage you to do that more. Um, if you ever get defensive, that's when you look like you're dumb, you know, and you guys are not dumb. You guys are really good reporters. I, I, you know, like when I first saw Max, I, I, you know, like I can't remember when it was. It was a few years ago. I kind of felt like he was totally cringe. 
because he was so defensive and he was so like, I don't know, on edge about it. And like, he thought that everybody should feel the same way that he felt about uh, Yemen and Palestine. And, you know, like, how do these people just, you know, uh, how are they not feeling the same way I'm feeling about these, these oppressed people? And it's like, we don't know, (laughs) you know, we don't understand. And how can we believe that when all we hear is just one, two reporters telling us these stories about these people? When the, main, when the mainstream media is basically telling us the complete opposite or ignoring it completely. And with you guys telling us the truth with a good sense of humor and your your um, attitude of being authentic, that's what really comes across. And I just wanted to say thank you for that. And uh, please keep it up and don't let this shit uh, get you down, okay? Hey, it's a plant. Thanks a lot, Heidi, for the kind <laughs> words. I, I, I appreciate that. And I'll just say about Max, first of all, Max is a really funny guy. He's one of the funniest guys I know. He's got a really, really good sense of humor. He's hilarious. The, the I've thing, noticed. The Since thing he that let makes, loose on Jimmy Dore, I totally yeah, noticed. Yeah. He, he's Like I said, this was years ago when I first saw him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And, and he and, has totally come, come through with, yeah. with a sense of humor. Yeah. What makes him come off as defensive sometimes to people is that, I mean, he has faced um, attacks <coughs> that that I personally haven't faced. He's faced people trying to bankrupt him. Like there was this crazy lawsuit backed by a neocon law firm that took up like I, I don't know years, you know. And there's that, and there's you know, there's been all these smear pieces written about him. So when that happens to you, I think you grow a bit of a hard shell. It's inevitable. But um, so I think that's if you pick up a defensiveness, I think that's where that's you know that's what that reflects. But yes, I also think that. Uh, I agree overall that when we're coming from a place of levity, when we can be funny and not take all this stuff too seriously, it's great. It's just, it's hard to do that sometimes when you're in the heat of it, but I totally agree with your sentiment. Yeah, Yeah, I completely understand. And I just don't want to see either of you or anybody get cynical about it. You know, I, I even kind of worry when I see Jimmy Dore, when he gets like really on his rants, I worry that the guy's going to have a heart attack. You know (laughs) what I mean? Yeah. I'm just like, chill out, please. Yeah. Yeah, I hear so, you. It's important not to uh, internalize that all the negative energy that gets, you know, that gets thrown our way. Uh, I totally agree yes, with that. I totally agree. Absolutely. So thank you. And, and don't get me wrong, Max has won me over. I'm telling you, it was years ago when I oh, first good. saw that. You know, when I good. when I had that feeling about him, and and yeah. I've seen him yeah. since, and I've seen his sense of humor develop, and he has definitely won me over. But I just wanted to make sure you know that. You have the the support and the fans out there who really like you. They really like your authenticity. They really like the way you come across as real. And I got it. I, I got it. I got it. And I really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Take care. All right. Anthony. Hey, what's up, Aaron? What's going on? Just chilling. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I keep hearing Paul Masson, the BSOP brandy. Come on. Paul Masson. Anybody? drink that okay <laughs> yeah yeah okay yeah sure sure that's but, good uh, i i think uh you know i have no idea who this guy is he sounds like a real piece of work but i think you quote tweeted him or maybe max did or something uh, about a month ago may 7th and it was he said something like these are the purveyors of russia's message like it was a preview uh, to what he's going through and i just replied eat shit and I, I didn't even remember that and i looked at it today i was like oh wow that's funny but yeah, what what kind of guy is this? Like, they say he's a journalist, activist, politician. I don't know what he is, but he's obviously like a Fed in the Britain. Yeah, I mean, again, he he came to prominence 
on the left in the UK. He was on the BBC for a long time and he was sort of a like the left guy on the BBC and he campaigned for Jeremy Cor- Corbyn. But while though, meanwhile, he was plotting behind Jeremy Corbyn's back to undermine him. And um, unfortunately in politics, there's just a lot of people like that, you know, <laughs> they're, they're everywhere. It's, it's hard enough to go up against, you know, people who are not on your side officially, but then even people who are on your side, your supposed friends will undermine you. And that's just, you know, it's just dirty. Yeah. That's like uh, the Weaver, Weaver in the Sanders campaign kind of thing. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, what was I going to say? Uh, it, it might, it may, reminds me of, uh, you know, we had the whole Nina Jankowitz episode here and it looks like they didn't really get rid of that. They just put, uh, top nine eleven suspect Michael Chertoff to, you know, take it take it underground. So it's it's getting pretty weird, you know. That's that's way more serious than scary poppins. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, absolutely. All right. Thanks for the call, Anthony. All right, Chris. And Chris, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right. There you go. All right, you got me. Yes, yes, we do. All right. Uh, uh, I'm calling from New York, and uh, I'm a 68-year-old Vietnam veteran, and uh, I grew up in an Italian family, and, uh, you know, everything fell off the back of the truck. And to get to your point, I've been listening to you and Max and uh, his other partner when they did that uh, great uh, documentary uh, in, about Gaza. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. and that's what really got me going, uh, and and really paying attention to you to you guys, and the arguments that you present. Okay, it's never take it personal because believe me, as a sixty eight year old man who went through Vietnam at the tail end of the war when the ceasefire ended, we all knew it was make believe. We, we, we created a proxy from the south to the north. So what's going on, you know, and, and, and these people trying to deplatform you and, and, and what the lady said before, you know, uh, like when Patrick first came out and heard this, you know, he took it as a bad one, you know. And then Richard, uh, uh, what's his name, Richard Medhurst, okay, yeah. he's on the same list uh, as you guys and uh, – uh, Glenn Greenwald, all you guys that are doing this real reporting, okay, about world affairs, you know, uh, out of the 8 billion people in the world, maybe there's 50,000 that might know what you guys are talking about. So because <laughs> they have such a monopoly on everything that, yeah. you know, I get on the subway sometimes, on New York City subway, all right? And I tell people what the hell is going on, and the only people that really respond to me are people of color, believe it or not. And mm. everybody's so screwed up on putting food on their table. And, you know, what really got them is when I said, well, you know, they spent they sent $40 billion over to help this country. Meanwhile, we can't have baby food. That hit, mm-hmm. that hit a nerve. So, you know, you're reporting and, and, and about this creep another cutout, you know, that they're using to try to discredit you, okay, means that you guys are getting to them. You guys are finally finally realizing 
that they got some competition they got to deal with, and that yep. they lost the narrative. Like uh, Michael E. Michael Jones, I'm sure you know about E. Michael Jones. All all these guys, Kevin Barrett, okay, that's on press TV, okay. I mean, the narrative that these people have spent billions of dollars to try to control, and this is part of the 13 protocols of the of the design. One of the protocols was to take over the media. Okay, okay you know what? Listen, Chris. I have to stop you there because uh, I uh, I don't accept the protocols of the elders of Zion as a uh, legit thing. I think it's a anti-Semitic. But who owns it though? Uh, well, <laughs> look, listen, Chris. Chris, we're gonna uh, stop it there because uh, we've reached a point of disagreement. But I appreciate the kind words, and um, doesn't mean we can't agree on certain things. But it's just on the protocols thing. I just you know that's not a place that I that I want to engage with. So thank you for the call. I appreciate it. All right, Jeff. Okay. Hello there, Aaron. Hi. Well, I have some good news and some bad news. So in the classic form of the tradition, I'll start with the good news. The good news is my lady, uh, who is a PhD and has been uh, working for 27 years in the wellness community of academia, has helped people. Jeff, Jeff, you were cutting out. You were cutting out. So are you on Bluetooth? Uh, yep. Yes, I'm on Bluetooth. Are you on Bluetooth? Yep. You are okay. So if you could, if you could turn it off because it's 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 clipping your sound. Is that okay? That's better. Yeah. All right. Well, my lady uh, has been working in the wellness community for academia for 27 years, and she's been helping people with bipolar and okay, suicidal Jeff, ideation. Jeff, yep. sorry, you you are still clipping. So if you want to figure out your sound, I w- I would take off Bluetooth. And and come back in the queue, and, and I'll let you back in, and we'll see if, if it's any better. So, Jason, you are next. Hey, Aaron. How you doing? Hi there. Hey, um, how much sleep do you get at night? It seems like you're always doing stuff like this. Uh, <laughs> you know, I um, I think there'll be a time when I'm sleeping better. Right, <laughs> now, I'm, right now, I'm also working on a book, trying to get um, but I'm trying to get out as soon as possible. So, you know, it's a it's a busy time. Oh, sounds good. Yeah. Uh, look forward to getting that. Hey, um, with the uh, DHS trying to hire Nina Jankowitz for that crazy Orwellian position, I mean, they had to have known like what she was doing and uh, like you know what she was about. Like, how how concerning is that to you that they would put her in a position of disinformation chief or whatever it was? Well, it's a kind of it's a similar thing as Paul Mason. It's hilarious, right? It's so funny. It's so clumsy. And it speaks to a certain ineptitude at the top that they would hire someone so ridiculous uh for that position. But I guess anyone who even thinks that there should be a disinformation board like that is going yeah. to not really be seeing straight because the the idea itself is a farce. I mean, even if Nina Jankowitz wasn't such a clownish character, it would still be a joke, you know? So it was just that much more hilarious that they picked someone like that uh, who was just so partisan and so ridiculous uh, and so openly censorious. I mean, that was the most ridiculous thing about her, not the fact that she's saying, you know, Mary Poppins songs about disinformation. I mean, that was funny, but uh, the fact that she wanted to censor people, she wanted to give Twitter, uh, 
a new feature where people who have been verified to her liking can go and edit other people's tweets and provide the context that she feels is missing. Essentially, she wanted to censor. That was her remit, basically. That was her mission. So that's what's most ridiculous about her. And yeah, it was scary. And look, the board hasn't gone away. They put it on pause, and they actually appointed Michael Chertoff, who was right, Bush's yeah. homeland security. Yeah. So, I mean, the problem isn't solved just by her nomination being quashed. I mean, they just needed to find a way to make it less look obvious. And that's what they're doing now. So it's totally scary. Yeah, yeah, they'll definitely work around it somehow. Yeah. I mean, it's like an Orwellian agency within an Orwellian agency within Orwellian agency. It's crazy. But, you know, thanks for, uh, thanks for your answer. Thanks for the call. Okay. And we're going to bring back in. Oh, I thought I saw the caller who was in before, but I don't see him now. Okay. So Sam, you are up next. And again, to the caller who was having audio issues, if you fix them, you want to come back in the queue, I will put you back ahead. I forgot your name. Okay. Sam, go ahead. Congratulations, Aaron. You have finally pissed off the the top of the top. Must feel nice, man. I mean, I was shocked to know that I know people would try and discredit you, but to have an entire like meeting of, hey, how do we, you know, remove the gray zone? That's a props, man. I mean, and here's what I told you. I'm like, I don't remember anyone ever making a forum to remove the democracy now. I don't remember a forum, you know, people meeting up like, hey, how do we remove the Young Turks? So you guys must be really pissing people off. I mean, what is it, like three or four of you guys at the Gray Zone? And they have to have a meeting about, like, how do we get these guys off? That's that's impressive, man. I mean, that these guys control, like, they have, like, conglomerate. They're on BBC. They're on, you know, every other mainstream outlet. And they, they literally take time out of their day to go, all right, the Gray Zone is the actual threat we need to, to fight. I'm like, that's... That's like four guys. The four people <laughs> piss you off to that extent. You have to have like a little, you know, sleepover about what to do with it. So congrats, man. I mean, that is straight up like being a thorn in somebody's side to such an extent that they need to have a, a sleepover with other people. Like, okay, they're hurting us. They're, they're not, uh, they're not backing down. What do we do? Props, like nothing but props. What I, uh, what I can't get over is now you have definitive proof. That this that there is an actual like effort to remove you guys so much so they're reaching out to the intelligence service. Hey, how do we how do we get these guys up? Although I'm not really sure. Correct me. I'm like when he reached out, was that like an actual British intelligence service or like that's just like the 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 government's form of like the FCC? Um, I'm not exactly sure what that agency is that they were the guy was trying to invite. One of the people who communicates in the emails is mm-hmm. a British intelligence official. At first, the authors of the article, Max Linthal and Kit Clarenberg, didn't realize that, but they've pieced it together. And um, since then, they've added actually an update or a correction to the story. Let me actually see if I can read it to clarify this. But yeah, there is a senior intelligence official who is actually involved in, um, yeah, his name is Andy Price, and he's with the UK uh, Foreign Office. And, um, is that the same foreign office that sends money to the white helmets and they claim it's international group? Like, don't you have a separate funding for like, it's like British humanitarian something or another. Why isn't it going through that? And I remember somebody's like, because that has a lot of oversight. The foreign office does not. Uh, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. The foreign office was heavily involved in the white helmets. And yeah, Mason is in touch with Andy price and Andy price floats this idea 
of what he calls an international information brigade. Um, and it's basically there to, uh, you know, the, the, the immediate task is putting out propaganda about Ukraine. And um, this is one of the elements of it. It says, uh, number three, be funded by a collective from like-minded Western countries, perhaps through cutouts. So this is a senior uh, British official telling Paul Mason of an idea for an international information brigade, as he calls it, funded by cutouts. So it's basically, you know, sharing the playbook that we've long been talking about at the gray zone, which is, you know, Western states putting out propaganda through organizations that look as if they're neutral and they're just there to get the truth like Bellingcat, but they're cutouts. And that's what is being discussed by Paul Mason and his uh, British contact, Andy Price here. I mean, what, what irritates me is, look, I'm as progressive left as you can get. I despise Fox News. I despise One American News. But do I call for them to be censored? No. I, that is the definition of free speech. You want to battle somebody, battle them on the idea front. And yet instead, you're literally going, OK, how do we get these guys? I'm like, well, what is it that four people who you say, oh, they're such a fringe group. OK, if they're so fringe, why do you need to have an entire meeting on how to, like, remove these guys? Absolutely. It's because they're, they're obviously you're obviously like sticking it to them. But yes. um, to, your, to your original point of the original thing you, in your the, the title of this conversation, I couldn't stop laughing because I think it was maybe about a month ago. The Young Turks had on some professor, I don't know if it's the same study, where he was talking about like, oh, how they did investigation and they say you guys are Russian influence. And uh, this professor also claimed, um, give me a second, uh, the name, Annex and asked him about, oh, BJ Pashad. And how, you know, she's and they said, well, we don't really have information as much, but we believe he's linked with the Chinese government or something. And I was like, so you'll do a whole segment where the professor doesn't actually have direct evidence to say, all right, here is like a wire transfer. Here is direct Russian, you know, interference into these guys. But now you have direct evidence. Here you go that there is an actual forum where they're reaching out with the intelligence service how to shut these guys down. And mums the word. I haven't seen one progressive left try like even talk about it. And again, I, I mean, Navarro is, I'd say, relatively milk toast, you know, progressive. And even they were like, yeah, this is effed up. And, you know, I mean, the only reason I, that they were even on the same grouping as you guys was simply because they pushed back to him. They said, look, we're in favor of NATO. If, if the U.S. is if people are going to arm Ukrainians, we don't really mind it. We didn't see a NATO build up, but we're consistent about it being like. You can't, you know, remove people for speaking ill about NATO, but then, you know, super quiet about Palestine or or Yemen. Oh, no, no. Russian talking points. It's like that's absurd. That's that. And that's why his feelings got hurt. So he lumps them in there with them. Uh, I'm just shocked that like there's such little coverage from any like, of course, your standards are going to get it. But I haven't seen you would think TYT at least would cover and say, all right, look, in fairness, we have to cover it and say, like, there is an actual effort to. To silence these people, we not, may not agree with them. We may have severe disagreements with them, but at the very least, you can't do this. This is quite literally, you know, Orwellian level of okay, we have to silence them. Still nothing. So I would say congratulations, but I would say as far as Mason's concerned, they're just going to sweep them under under the rug. I, I would go back. This might be an obscure obscure reference, but I think it was around 2017. Somebody was. I remember the Guardian would always interview this guy. His wife was on Bill Maher. He was Syrian or something. And he claimed like that he was stabbed by like Syrian intelligence or some or one another. And then his friend had recorded him saying like, no, I, I made this up. 
and there was really no repercussion. The Guardian put a little like edit editor's note, and that was it. They just swept him under the rug. He no one had heard from him again. So I think that's what's going to happen with Mason. Either that, or considering he's already on, been on BBC, they're probably just promote him full time to BBC because they won't see anything wrong with what he did. Right. But, uh, I I agree. And Sam, thank you for the call. Thank you. Yeah. Enjoy, bro. Okay, Ian. And Ian, if you're there, there's a microphone button mm-hmm. in the bottom. There you go. Hey, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I was kind of just thinking about um, my impression of like Paul Mason and other people like him, kind of like given the, I guess, the benefit of hindsight. And I guess kind of had an insight about sort of like spotting, I guess you could say kind of like, you know, progressive, you know, type like, you know, media personalities or, or otherwise. And I was thinking back, so I didn't really know a whole lot about uh, Paul Mason like a decade ago, but I remember the first time I'd really seen um, him do anything, um, at least, you know, I guess maybe a UK audience would be more familiar with him. But so this was back in 2015 with uh, basically the, the Greek austerity referendum slash uh, sovereign debt crisis. And I was watching something and they're like, you know, we're going to go to Paul Mason, like famed British progressive, you know, journalist, documentarian, et cetera, et cetera. And there he is. He's like camped out in Athens with like this, you know, this really nice shot over the city. I think you could see like like that hill with the Parthenon and like way far back. And one of the things I noticed is that, so here he is, he's placed as the sort of progressive voice. He's obviously opining on a timely, you know, and, you know, politically important issue, you know, about, you know, state sovereignty and can you have progressive policies that benefit your population or should you be a debt colony to the European Central Bank and IMF and stuff? One of the first things I noticed, because this was maybe it it seemed like a pretty long um, spiel. And so if you're a person who at least feel like you have pretty good, you know, listening and and reading comprehension, um, like this was the kind of like talk where I noticed that I couldn't really make I couldn't really make out what his statement was, like what his argument was that he was kind of meandering around and touching on like all these little kind of points of the issue. But there was like this, like, I don't know, kind of major like vagary and lack of clarity in what he was saying. I mean, kind of like when you think about like a Hollywood action movie that will kind of like sneak in like a, a little reference to mass surveillance or, to like popular protest to kind of make it look like it's tuned into something cutting edge, but then there's no depth to it. And it just ends up being a regular old movie. And I, you know, I thought about someone else who kind of, you know, exhibited that, you know, uh, quality, which was Rachel Maddow. So even before she kind of like jumped the shark with the Russiagate stuff and everybody could see that she was kind of being an obvious propagandist. So I remember back in like 2011, 2012, people would be like, oh, yeah, check out Rachel Maddow. She's like smart. She's progressive. And I turn it on and I was like, all, I had this impression. This is a smart person. This is a progressive person. But what is she actually saying? You know, this kind of meandering between like different, you know, facts or, or pseudo facts to give you the impression 
that you're watching something meaningful, but actually devoid of content. Yeah. And that was kind of the same thing with Paul Mason. And lo and behold, years later, you know, some of these people turn out to be kind of, you know, really active in like, you know, some, I guess, pretty counter revolutionary or just, you know, um, state aligned stuff. But for, like, they've always kind of been about bullshit, but just like, having the ability to give you the impression that they weren't. And I think it's a pretty, pretty useful skill to be able to detect like who is like the up and coming kind of class of Imperial bullshitters, you know, (laughs) I, um, I totally agree. I totally agree. They do excel at that. Rachel Maddow is a genius at that. It's like looking is to be progressive. And then look what happens when Russia gate comes along. Yeah. Just like, unhinged cold war mania and that's what's been normalized across that whole scene i mean that's what gets you published in the in the guardian and in the uk which is like the you know the main liberal yeah i mean uh, they have so many like kind of pseudo left comment you know commentators and then you know corbyn it it became pretty clear oh they hated corbyn they hated corbyn and uh i mean when corbyn see corbyn essentially exposed all of them to be frauds because they're able, as long as on the left, there's no actual leftist alternative. They can all pretend as if they represent the progressive liberal, you know, left, like that whole thing. But then Corbyn comes along and he, um, you know, believes in some of the things that they believe in, claim to believe in too, you know, uh, you know, equal rights for everybody, protecting marginalized groups. But he also takes it to a class analysis and also even worse for them to an imperialist analysis where he's talking about how he's doesn't want to be involved in regime change abroad and he opposes sanctions, all these things that they're either complicit in or silent about. And that's why he had to be destroyed. And that's why Bernie Sanders, who's a much milder version of, of, of Jeremy Corbyn, he had to be destroyed too, because even Bernie Sanders was too big of a threat to them. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, you know, it also kind of points to your guys' situation a little bit. If you kind of have this kind of class that is basically like, owning basically a vacuous left discourse mm-hmm. when people who are like doing actual analysis and actual critical reporting show up, it's an immediate threat because this is kind of a foundation built on sand that the sort of cultural, you know, I guess, or sort of um, media class progressives that are, are thriving on it yeah. all, all of a sudden becomes apparent they're not authentic. And so they've got to shut up anybody who is, I guess, kind of puncturing the illusion. Absolutely. 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 All right, Ian, thanks a lot for the call. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Okay, Jeff. And Jeff, if you're there, there's a microphone button to press in the bottom right. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. uh, Anyhow, I wanted to talk about the, the video that showed up Today, with the uh, with the guy down in Venezuela being forced out of a, a restaurant by patrons there. The, yes. I, For those who missed this, this is Juan Guaido, the uh, U.S. puppet who the U.S. is trying to install as president of Venezuela in a coup that's been going on for three years. And the U.S. calls him interim president Guaido, even though, you know, um, he hasn't even been elected to anything at this point anymore. And... You know, he has, almost, he has almost no support left at all inside the country. And he went to a, a restaurant to meet with some supporters. And for the second time in a week, 
violence broke out and he was directly attacked and people were attacking him. And uh, so now the U.S. is condemning this, you know, and saying we support interim President Guaido, um, which is doubly ironic because when Nicolas Maduro was attacked in a drone attempted drone strike uh, a few years ago during the Trump administration, the Trump administration did not condemn that. I think that's because if I were to guess, I think that's because they were a part of it. Um, So it's just funny. Venezuela's real president, he gets assassination attempts. Venezuela's fake president, when he gets assaulted by his own supporters, then the U.S. has to speak out. Okay, well, my point about that is if they actually do believe that, and I don't think they do believe that he has any legitimacy whatsoever, but if they actually believe that even one iota, why was he not the person they brought to the OAS meeting to uh, represent Venezuela? Mm, and yeah. also that OAS, OAS meeting was such a disaster, it barely even made a blip on any news. You know, I think that should be discussed. Uh, absolutely. I uh, I totally agree. It's um, hilarious. And AMLO, the president of, of Mexico, I think did something very heroic in refusing to come because the U.S. refused to allow Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua to uh to attend. And I think that, you know, this meeting really underscores just how fed up people are with U.S. hegemony and U.S. hypocrisy claiming to support democracy in a region that they've been undermining for centuries now. And, you know, uh, the fact that you have AMLO not attending uh, is a sign to me that, that, the, that the charade is, is slowly eroding. Um, did you see the video of the I believe it was a, a young woman that was attacked because she kind of came close to the motorcade and during that meeting and, uh, and a secret service agent just totally mauled her. It, it might have been a, a guy with, you know, but because, you know, it wasn't the clearest video, but I was just wondering if you saw that video and just uh, the total overreaction that, that occurred. I didn't see that. No. I, I miss that. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, I guess that that's part of the whole, uh, you know, I mean, that, 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 that whole meeting just, uh, kind of got, got swept under the rug, you know, and, and so that, that's part of the whole process of, of something that they decide to not show just, 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 you know, they, they can just make it disappear, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yep. All right, Jeff, thank you for the call. Thank you. Okay. Okay, Ivana. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to ask you two questions. One is, what is the status of your reporting on um, the uh, Duma uh, whistleblowers? Um, I know you testified in uh, at the UN, and I think you were uh, the sort of invited by Russia, and there was a lot of, uh, I guess, fuss uh, around that. Um, And given that, you know, like if you watch any of the recent sort of Security Council meetings, there's a lot of uh, uh, similar sentiment towards Russia, like every, you know, every country is sort of proclaiming all of these... uh, allegations of genocide and so on. And uh, then you have like Lavrov just basically laying out the case and the situation and it's just being ignored. So uh, I just wanted to know what 
what is the status there? And then um, what do you think about just the sort of like total alignment of uh, European foreign policy among all of the countries? Uh, I guess the only outlier being Serbia who uh, refuses to impose sanctions. Okay, so on the first question, the status of the OPCW reporting, um, <coughs> I'm still I'm working on my next article. It's taken me a while because I'm working on a book right now about RussiaGate that I'm trying to complete very quickly so we can release it as soon as possible. So that's my top priority right now. But there is more OPCW reporting due. There are more leaks that have not come out. Uh, it's you know just continuing the theme of damning revelations about how the investigation was compromised to reach a narrative that was not supported by the facts. And um, I think I've already published 12 or 13 articles on the topic. And yeah, I did testify at the UN twice at the invitation of Russia one time. And the second time was at the invitation of China because China convened one of those meetings and Russia convened the other. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, look, the fact that the meetings I spoke at were organized by Russia and China has been used to, um, try to undermine me, but look, these are members of the UN Security Council, and of course, in a, and and in attendance were other members of the UN Security Council. And what matters to me is whether or not I'm being factual or not, and that's what matters. And you'll notice that in the attacks on me, no one ever challenges anything I actually say. They only try to pivot to who invited me, or they try to come up with smears like Paul Mason was mm-hmm. trying to do. So um, that's where it's at. But yeah, so look, there's. I mean, there's a lot more to do on that front, a lot more stuff that has not come out yet um, that will come out in due time. It's just, you know, these stories I take a long time for me to write mm-hmm. because it's a very, you know, it's a very technical topic and I have to be very, very precise with my language and I have to be sure about it. Um, and right now, yeah. you're still working on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and look, there, there's going to be more developments because the OPCW has something called the IIT uh, which is a mechanism that was established to assign blame for attacks. Because the normal OBCW fact-finding missions, like the one in Duma, they don't assign blame. They just gather facts and they put them out in the report. But it's not in their mandate to actually assign blame. So this mechanism called the IIT was created with, you know, with, with the U.S. basically pushing it through. Russia mm-hmm. and others were opposed to it. And basically, <laughs> its mandate you know, in, in real life will be to try to somehow come up with a story that legitimizes the OPCW uh, narrative that was concocted to cover up for the OPCW's actual findings. That, that's what it will do. So they are due to put out a report on Duma soon. When they do, I'm sure they will, they're going to figure out some creative way to claim that the OPCW uh, Duma investigation, the public investigation, was credible, and they're going to find a way to blame Syria for Duma, uh, thereby completely uh, contradicting their own investigation, the original investigation that was censored. So I can't wait to see what they do. And when they do that, I'm sure Doom will be back in the news again and it will be a whole new thing. And of course, Bellingcat will claim vindication. But this whole thing has been fixed the entire time. And the point is, mm-hmm. you know, the, the key point about the LPCW is when you have allegations of a massive cover-up and you have documents showing that, then by definition, anything that comes out is suspect unless steps are taken to actually address the cover-up, which would mean letting the, letting the dissenting inspectors come to the OPCW, present their findings, 
and dealing with them and, and arguing one way or the other why the OPCW thinks that they're wrong, what what uh, findings they misinterpreted perhaps, or what mm-hmm. what data undermines their position. But that will never happen because they know everyone knows that, that the inspectors, the dissenting inspectors, were right that, that the original mission found no evidence of a chemical attack for a reason because there was no chemical attack, and that's right. the reality. But that's, that now, that's one of one of the things that you've pointed out before is that like, this isn't some kind of like fake thing that happened. Like it's not, you know, some baseless allegation of genocide, but it's like, or, or like an attack or, you know, massacre or whatever. It, it's actually, there were bodies that were displayed and nobody knows like, like if this attack was either staged or if there was somebody else responsible or whatever, like it, it, that investigation hasn't happened yet. And exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. And, and so those who support the cover up of the OPCW cover up, mm-hmm. they're basically saying they don't care how those people died. So they're basically covering up for a murder because mm-hmm. those people there were killed one way. We don't know how. I don't know how they were killed. It's possible they were killed by the Syrian government in a bombing like they were sheltering right. in, in, a, in an area and then uh, it got bombed. And then so they all inhaled smoke or dust and they died that way. And then their bodies were then were then manipulated to make yeah. it look as if they were uh, the victims of a chemical attack, or it's much worse, or they were killed by the insurgents who then used their bodies as props. Either way, I'm confident to say it was not a chemical attack. I'm also confident to say that the insurgents there did stage the scene, both in that building and at the hospital. That's, to me, now without a doubt. What is, um, what is not... Uh, confirmed at all and what, and what we don't know like what's a mystery is how they actually died we don't know and the best way to find out would be to do a transparent credible investigation but that's the point everything now is geared towards preventing a credible investigation because all the evidence points to this thing being staged and what is the like the proven sort of involvement like things you, you were able to prove or somebody was able to prove about um the involvement of the white helmets the white helmets put out the hospital scene they filmed it and they mm-hmm. released it to the world. Uh, Robert Fisk spoke to people who, uh, uh, to witnesses who, t- who saw the white helmets come in with video cameras and yelling gas attack, gas attack, basically trying to whip everyone up into a frenzy and then immediately hosing down children and filming them. Um, and basically using all these kids as props to mm-hmm. make it look like it was a chemical attack. And Riam Delati of the BBC did an investigation where he spoke to people he investigated it for something like six months. And he says, unequivocally, I can prove that that, that that was staged. And so, by the way, even if you knew nothing else about Duma, even if the OPCW whistleblowers didn't exist, right? Mm-hmm. What are the odds that a real massacre occurs, a real chemical attack occurs? And then some people say, you know what? Just to make sure the world believes us, let's stage a hospital scene. I mean, it's just so illogical. Yeah. If one scene is staged, then that automatically... Uh, leads to the conclusion that everything else must be staged unless you can show otherwise. But they can't. They can't mm-hmm. because this thing was such a stage incident. And again, again, putting aside the OPCW whistleblowers and all those leaks, the documents from the OPCW, again, what logical sense does it make for the Syrian government to do the one thing that it knows will invite U.S. military intervention? Is the Syrian government really going to do something that it knows will uh, incite a U.S. military strike? It just, you know, the whole thing makes no sense. All this only serves the agenda of people who want to um, overthrow the government. And that's a lot of powerful people 
uh, around the world and inside Syria there, you know, that was a major insurgency. So, um, yeah. And I just want to point out, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you. So like there are a lot of, um, uh, parallels to, you know, what was happening in the nineties in, uh, in Yugoslavia, right. Where there were these, um, attacks on, uh, you know, bread lines and stuff where like you would have people, you know, gather around for free bread and then there would be like a massacre. And then, you know, it was immediately blamed on, blamed on the Serbs. But of course, nobody could prove that. It was just, you know, as long as it gets into the media, then the story sticks, right? And so even, you know, to justify NATO, the NATO invasion, uh, in, I think it was like, uh, the, there was a report that, was very very famous i think it was like a time cover where you know it displayed like people behind a barbed wire fence and you know it was like genocide first time after world war ii you know milosevic's hitler blah 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 and then it turned out that this the scene was just basically of people of refugees like kind of gathering in a in a center completely free to come and go and the the uh the the barbed wire was just basically like a chicken wire fence around the generator and that the British reporters actually went in to that like little fenced off area and filmed out of it to generate these images that were then sort of used to sell this story of, you know, right, there's right. a genocide. And if you, if you ever, and this was like, you know, I grew up there. So it was like, if you ever, thought about, you know, I didn't even think about, you know, child or like, uh, you know, think about uh, doubting that because it was so seared in our mind. And so when, you know, all these other countries that seceded from Yugoslavia were entering NATO, one of the stories that, you know, helped uh, sell the, uh, uh, the, and one of your one of your listeners was asking about you know NATO expansion or whatever. So one of the uh, f- fears that was uh, a factor in in uh, these countries joining NATO was that like we need to protect ourselves from the from other ma- yes so, yeah exactly yes. and that's, that's the what same this stuff thing that the Baltic states yeah are now you know it's like Putin is Hitler and right. we need to be protected. Ivana, I'm going to yeah. take the next caller because I got to awesome. go soon. So thanks for the call. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Okay, and Tim, you will be the last caller for today. Apologies to everyone online, but I have to cut it off after this. So, Tim, go ahead. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, I have to thank you hugely for two things. Um, first of all, uh, the revelation out of you know the mouth of babes that uh, Bellingcat is, as I always thought, the most obvious stovepiping exercise <laughs> I've ever seen is <laughs> is so satisfying. <laughs> and then the second thing that Paul Mason is, you know, completely bent, which I've always thought, mm-hmm. and to to have him basically expose himself like that, it, it it was like a birthday present. It was spectacular. So thank you for that. I have a I have a question for you, a suggestion, I guess. Here's a he, here's the thing. You know that preposterous chart that he produced. I'm wondering whether we should not or I shouldn't say we, sorry, I'm not a journalist, but whether it makes sense to create a chart that reproduces 
all of the funding of all of these gongos, that is government organized, non-government organizations, and all the enormous amount of money that goes into all of these things, and actually just put that out there as a response to his absurd idea that somehow, you know, having a rational argument about international relations is a talking point issue, you know, like the fact that the, the idea that something is important as the relationship between nuclear armed powers can be reduced to the inf infantile idea that if you sound like someone else, you are, you are equivalent to someone else. You know, right. the, the, the lack of seriousness about Western culture. And actually, you know, I, I wanted to also ask you, it seems to me that, you know, our security services aid our media. And I mean, Glenn Greenwald has done great work on this, just laying out like if you line up all the people who've been exposed over over time in the past four or five years, it's astonishing, right? They just it's a revolving door between the State Department and MSNBC, you know. And at which point, at what point, do we even like credit these organizations as actual media organizations anymore, you know? But I, I but I do think it, it might really put some teeth into it because the. You know, the, the idea of a kind of layout of all, all the things that we've learned in a chart, in a handy chart, like Paul Mason was so, you know, wise to share with us all, um, you know, with interactive, you know, my wife is a, is a information design designer. Like, it could be hilarious to produce a chart. Yeah, it's a good that, idea. That just lays out all of the things that we know about how, how all these, pe these corrupted people are connected. And, it's a good, it's and, a good idea, because you know we got to fight back against this stuff. It's really horrifying, and yeah. I mean, much as I enjoy it, it's very, very, very worrying about where where we're headed. Anyway, I'm I'm getting doing. It's a good things. idea. It's a good idea. The only issue is I that I see is it just the the chart will be so oversaturated because there's so many different shady cutout groups and so many different funders governments government cutouts so that would just like they might be a hard chart to discern but i think it should be done and i think it would be really illuminating i mean if you look at like for example Anne applebaum who's this regime change character columnist for the atlantic she sits on like every time i come across some new you know fake organization that's like fighting quote-unquote disinformation the odds are that Anne applebaum will, will be on the board and there so many of these characters overlap and so many of their funders overlap like pierre Midiar. And George Soros, I mean, it sounds cartoonish, but really they fund so many different of these uh, regime change cutout organizations. So a chart I think would be great. I'm sure some exist, but, you know, it's always worth updating and seeing seeing what else can be done. So that's a good suggestion. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, not not and not to get into the weeds on this, but, um, you know, you can zoom in and out of those charts as much as you want. And we have enough information about who these people are and what they're actually up to that you yeah. could zoom in and out all day. Right. You right. know what I mean? Right. Anyway. Thank <laughs> you. Work. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Okay. Um, so I have to wrap it there. Apologies to everybody who I didn't get to. And uh, just to answer a question in the chat about the book. Yes. The book I'm doing is about Russiagate. And it's about how, you know, Russiagate brought us to where we are today. It's called, the title right now, for now, is called, it's, it's Hot War, Cold War. Hot War, Cold War, 
how Russiagate created chaos from the U.S. to Ukraine. And it's about Russiagate and how it's culminated in this hot war inside Ukraine. And I hope to finish it as soon as I can and get it out by the end of this year, if, uh, if possible. So, and that's what I actually have to go do now. Uh, to work on. So thanks to everybody who tuned in today. I really appreciate you spending some time with me. Thanks for everyone who called in and asked questions. I'll be back on here tomorrow with Katie Halper at 11 a.m. Eastern time after we do Monday morning on YouTube. And that's it. Have a great rest of your Sunday. Bye, everybody.